You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske. Oh, and today we have a new one, and with Sam Gardner. And this podcast is designed to help you reach your potential lead rate science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Yes, we have a new podcast host, a new co-host for this podcast, which has now more than 150 episodes, and we are adding another co-host. So stay tuned for this episode where we introduce you to Sam and his insights into non-clinical statistics. And you'll hear more from him in the future. So Sam is a really, really nice guy. He also participated, by the way, in the Effective Statistician Leadership Program. And so we spent quite a lot of time together there. Um, he worked at the same company like me and uh, like Gary, who also works on the Effective Statistician Leadership Program. And so we had a really quite a lot of interesting discussions. He is one of those, you'll learn more about that in the other podcast, um, reacted to my episode 150, where I asked for volunteers for other um for another podcast host. So stay tuned for this episode where you'll learn more about Sam, his career in, in statistics, and he has a really, really interesting career. So watch out for that. It's surely not the straight linear careers that you would expect. And you will also on the way get a lot of insights into non-clinical statistics. And I think these things will help us better understand our overall industry. And so maybe that is also something for you in the future. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the ever-growing video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars and much, much more. Visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another podcast. And today we are speaking not just Benjamin and myself, it's also Sam, our new co-host on this show. So welcome, Sam. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks. And thanks for inviting me to be part of the podcast. Yep. Yeah. So that is an outcome from episode 150, uh, where I asked where, you know, there's, there's other people that would potentially be interested. And yeah, so we have another co-host. Yeah, very welcome. That's very good uh, to have you here, Sam. And I'm really curious in getting to know you a little bit more uh, in, in this podcast episode. So what we are going to use today is uh, introducing Sam. So yep. Yep, because Sam actually fits quite nicely uh, into our area because he has a completely different background than Benjamin and myself. So can add a lot of value 
about things that, to be honest, I have no clue about. So it <laughs> <laughs> will be really, really good to, to uh, ask you lots of different questions. But let's first go a little bit into uh, your career because there's a couple of really, really interesting points in it. So maybe we start with, you know, how did you learn about this podcast and how did you kind of get connected to it? Well, I think my introduction to it might have been through seeing something on LinkedIn that was posted. And then I also enrolled in the Effective Statistician Leadership Program. I think I was in one of the initial, maybe the first wave that went through the first cohort. And uh, that was really great, very beneficial for me personally as a statistician. And, um, and you know, you and, and Gary Sullivan led that training course. So that was helpful. So I, I got to know you a little bit that way as well. And then I just listened to the podcast. I enjoy it. You know, it's, um, it's, it's good. It's very relevant content for me as a statistician. And it's fun for me to listen to while I'm on the weekend out cutting the grass in my lawn or Oh, just working around the house or if I'm driving somewhere, it's, it's a nice podcast for me to listen to and, and pass the time. Yeah. In, in terms of passing time, your, I learned about one of your favorite hobbies is smoking. And yes. it's not about yes. cigarette smoking. Not, not cigarettes, <laughs> not, nothing inhaled smoking. It's smoking meats. Yeah. Yes. So, so I like to smoke meat. Um, I like to make, uh, bacon speck and, mm -hmm. and i'm pretty good at that i think now and and smoked beef is a lot of fun smoked pork i do a lot of so yeah i enjoy that quite a bit okay so where exactly do you live <laughs> I, i'll send you my directions okay you can find on, on your favorite that map very, software. very tempting so yeah yeah uh, Okay, so uh, yeah, so that already explains you're you're most likely living in the U.S. Actually, in Indiana. <laughs> yes, yes. Homegrown in Indianian. Uh, and, yeah, born yeah. in uh, actually born in Kentucky, right across the river, in Louisville, Kentucky, and then I grew up in the southern part of Indiana. I went to university in Indiana. I attended Rose Holman Institute of Technology for two years, where I studied physics and chemistry. And then I transferred to Purdue University for my last two years of my undergraduate degree. And I changed my major to mathematics while I was at Purdue. Um, okay, very good. Yeah. And when you went outside of university, you did a really interesting step, uh, which I have, to be honest, very rarely seen. <laughs> yeah, so I uh, was very fortunate that... I had a reserve officer training corps scholarship from the United States Air Force. And so while I was in university, I took military training as part of my regular uh, coursework. And uh, through that training and through that program, I was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Air Force when I graduated from the university, from Purdue University. And so then right after I graduated, a few months later, I went on active duty as a military officer. And I spent a total of 12 years in the Air Force. Yeah, but as a mathematician and statistician. Right, right. As a, as a mathematician, as a military analyst, maybe it would be the best way to describe what I did. I, um, my first job in the Air Force was working in a group that built and maintained 
simulation models of weapon systems. And these simulation models were at different levels of fidelity. Some of them were very detailed. They would like model the, the fly out of a missile um, using sort of a finite element method type uh, approach, you know, where you every millisecond, how far did the missile go and what direction was it going and then do it again and do it again and simulate the forces on the missile and what it was trying to do and the direction it was trying to go to see if the missile could actually go where it needed or planned to go. All the way up to very high level models of taking all of that information and summarizing it into more of a probabilistic model. So if you took an aircraft and flew it at a certain distance and certain altitude uh, away and a certain speed from a, say a surface to air missile site, would this aircraft be able to survive that flight path or would it be likely that that aircraft would be shot down? And then those missiles, those, those models were then used in campaign simulation models where they'd say, well, what's the best way to fly an aircraft through a network of air defense systems? And, you know, that was also at the time, right around the time when the Soviet Union was still around, you know, you know it was kind of a cold war. Yeah, the yeah. Cold War, right? It was right at the end of the Cold War when I got involved with that. And, and um, so, you know, it was, uh, I was, it was kind of a neat job for a young 21, 22-year-old kid, really, to, to learn about Soviet surface-to-air missile systems and air-to-air missile systems and integrated air defense systems. And, and yeah, it was, it was really kind of fun. And I learned a lot about just general technology, computing technology, programming, um, and, and, I, and problem solving. Yeah, so that was just my first assignment in the Air Force. I, I did I, that for about three years. And from a, from a technical point of view, I really can imagine there must be completely different challenges. I mean, today in our days of, you know, cloud computing, you know, and, and stuff like this, it's just, you know, you do a simulation like, you know, easy task. Uh, you, you program whatever it is, and then you just let it run. And if it doesn't, you know, it's not, not within two seconds, then it takes you three seconds. But how did you... How was this done at that time? It wasn't this like a very, from the power that the computer set at that time to simulate such quite complex models must have been quite a challenge to get a program or whatever it was. was place. Yeah, it really was. And, wow. and we had pretty good computing technology for the time. Yeah. You know, that was in the 1989, 1990 timeframe. And so we had some nice Unix systems. We had a VAX mainframe system. We had PCs and we, um, We, we use them fully. We use their full mm. capability. And we would have simulations that sometimes would run for days or even weeks yeah. to get yeah. an answer. Now, I think today, those with the advent of cloud-based computing and parallel, you know, you could parallelize a lot of that type of computation. You could probably do those a lot faster. But then, you know what happens when the computing technology gets better? You try to solve bigger problems. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> But, Absolutely. Uh, I Absolutely. think we did one calculation where we had this grand plan to do this huge simulation. And based on the computing power we had, it we it would end up taking hundreds of years to complete. <laughs> <laughs> so of course we had to scale back our plans. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So, so basically you were already a data scientist at, at that time. In some respect, you know, I it was more of um I guess I would call it a a modeling scientist at that time. I learned a lot about just models in general. And that's paid off of throughout my career because whether it's a model of a system that's trying to model it based on a first principles physics 
mm -hmm. model or whether it's a higher level model that's just using probabilistic ideas or later on in my career where I started to use regression modeling and things like that, that it's, it's, it's kind of the same concepts apply, you know, that the, I'm going to pull it out, the George Box quote, right, that says all models are wrong, but some models are useful. That, yeah. you know, it's a paraphrase of what he said. And that holds true, whether it's a statistical model or a engineering model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that quote was on my, either my master thesis or my PhD thesis. I don't, don't remember exactly, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and then you went into the pharmaceutical industry and um, to, you know, the company where, I worked as well for 15 years and Gary worked as well for nearly 30 years, Lily in Indiana, um, but not on the pharmaceutical side or on the kind of um, clinical side with, you know, clinical studies and all these kind of things. But again, actually something that is much more closer to what we could call in our data science. Yeah. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit more about the, the path that I, that led me there. So while I was in the, while I was in undergraduate school, when I changed my major to mathematics from physics and chemistry, I met with my advisor and new math advisor, mathematics advisor. And he looked at me and he said, you ought to take a class in probability and statistics as to finish out your degree. And on the, in my body language, I kind of nodded my head and went, well, okay. In my head, I said, no way. No way am I going to take a statistics class. That is boring. Um, you have to keep in mind, my only exposure to statistics as an undergraduate was like in a laboratory class where you had to calculate a mean or a standard deviation or do a regression line. Yeah. Um, that was all I knew about statistics. So I said, no way. And so I just took a lot of applied mathematics, linear algebra, um, numerical analysis and a little, and, and then the theory courses that I had to take to get my degree. Um, and then um, when I was in that first job in the Air Force, I was able to enroll in a part-time master's degree program in mathematics. And it was a non-thesis non-thesis program. So all I had to do was take 11 graduate courses in mathematics. And I had taken eight courses and they again were all applied mathematics and theory you know, no, no statistics. And I had three courses to take and the only courses that were available that would let me graduate in the time frame that I wanted to were mathematical statistics, one and two, and experimental design. <laughs> and I was really not happy about it. I kind of remember just rolling my eyes and complaining about, oh, I have to take a statistics class. But you know what? I took that mathematical statistics class and I just fell in love with statistics. Um, just purely on based on the beauty of the mathematics behind it. Uh, and then I took experimental design and I fell in love with it even more because of the practicality of statistics and the ability it would have to allow me to be involved with solving problems using data. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so that was how I got into statistics. So I, I finished my master's degree in statistics and just having our master's degree in mathematics, only having those three statistics, statistics classes. And then um, I, the Air Force graciously sent me to school full time to study statistics. I applied for a program. And, and so they sent me to the University of Kentucky and I was in, in the PhD program there. And unfortunately, I didn't finish my PhD. That's one of my major regrets in life. But 
that's what it, life is sometimes. And <laughs> so I, I, I went through the whole PhD program, but I didn't finish my dissertation. But I got a really great, solid education foundation. A lot of the program there was based on mathematical statistics. And so, and I love that because I just love the math. Um, but I also had a lot of uh, exposure to multivariate analysis and, um, and modeling. I took a really great class in econometrics, two econometrics classes that was taught by a professor in the econ department. And those are really great because it was all about building models, you know, yep. based yep. on observational data. And, um, and so I love that. And my, the dissertation topic that I had pursued was kind of on the boundary of multivariate analysis and mathematical statistics. So, you know, I got a really good, solid mathematical foundation that's really benefited me throughout my career. Um, and then I spent my time in the Air Force. So I, I had did the whole 12 years doing being a military analyst. I taught statistics for a few years at the Air Force Institute of Technology, which is the Air Force's graduate school. And... Um, I discovered there that although I thought I'd love to be an academic, I really didn't want to be an academic because, <laughs> because of um, the research part of it. And not so much research in of itself, but just it seemed like a lot of it was research for research only yeah, and not yeah. really focused on solving a problem that someone had. And that's what I love. I love solving problems. And, and so I discovered that about myself. And so um, after the 12 years in the Air Force that I had to serve because they sent all this time, spent all this time sending me to school. So I had to pay back my time while I was in school. Then I left the military and uh, I joined Eli Lilly working at a manufacturing plant here in my hometown that where they did small molecule active pharmaceutical ingredient manufacturing and also the research and development on how to figure out how to make new APIs, new small molecule APIs, and, and, and also test the quality of news, those new APIs. So I got hired there as a statistician to support uh, that type of work. Uh, API is for active pharmaceutical yeah. ingredient, I guess. Active yep. pharmaceutical ingredient, yes. Sometimes it's also called drug substance. It depends on the, who you talk to and which regulatory yeah. guidance people like to follow. But we either say... API or drug substance for the, that's the actual molecule that is the medicine. Yeah. Yeah. And that gets formulated. So packaged into lots of other stuff so that you right. can actually take so it. It can get yeah. put into a tablet. It can get put into an injectable solution. It can be lyophilized, which means it's dried out in a freezer using freeze drying. And then it comes along with a, a diluent, another solution that it's needs to be used to, put it back into solution before it's used. There's lots of different formulations and forms of drug products that use drug substances. Okay. So you're probably your background in, in chemistry is then also coming as a plus in working that yeah. environment. Yeah. So, you know, being a, having studied chemistry for a couple of years and then also later after I start joined Lilly and worked in that area, the chemical manufacturing area, I went back to school at Purdue University, which was right across the river, right across, literally like five miles from where I was working was Purdue University. So I went back to where I got my original degree and finished my degree in chemistry, mainly because I wanted to learn more about chemistry so I could be more effective as a statistician. That was really what it was, but also because I just love to learn and I love science. And I only had to take like seven classes. So over a period of a couple of years, two and a half years, I took those seven classes and 
And I was very gracious that my boss at the time allowed me to do that and manage that with my work schedule and take the time I needed to go take my classes during the day and to just make sure I worked and made up my time in the evenings or weekends so that I could take my classes. That's actually quite interesting. It's one of these common themes in statistics that uh, whenever you want to have do applied statistics, it's really helpful that you know much more about the area that you apply it in. Whatever it is, yeah, you just have um, better communication with the different people that you work with. You better understand the problems. You better understand the constraints. You better understand the, the opportunities within these problems. And so that makes so much things so much easier for as a statistician. You're not reliant on kind of, you know, basically sitting next to a scientist all the time because you need to ask him constantly all kinds of different questions. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's pretty clear. If you want to be effective as a statistician, you need to know the science or the technology or the general environment and terminology of the area that you're working in and helping with. Uh, status statistics doesn't exist as a science really on its own. At least I don't. It, well, mathematics statistics maybe. Maybe mathematical statistics a little bit, but but really practical statistics exists in partnership with other areas that need help to solve problems using statistical thinking and statistical methods. Yeah, yeah. That's why I went back to school. And it was interesting. I, I had the opportunity because of that to work and change my career a little bit. And for two years, I worked in manufacturing as a manufacturing scientist. So I worked as a chemist that was responsible for a manufacturing process And that was a little, that was a lot different um, than working as a statistician. You know, when you're a statistician, your typical work schedule is nine to five and you can take your time off. Sometimes you have to work extra hours, but you know, you're mostly working at a computer while you're doing your work or talking to people. Mm -hmm. This job was uh, walking out in the manufacturing plan, inspecting things, making sure they were working right, getting phone calls at 2 a.m. in the morning because something broke. Yeah. (laughs) And it had to be addressed. And, you know, my job was to address the problem from the standpoint of how do we get this process working again? And also what was the impact to quality on the material that the process was making when it broke? And, um, and so, yeah, that was, that was different. I, I enjoyed that because it was always a problem to solve. There were problems to solve every day and I love solving problems. Although it was a little bit exhausting because of yeah. the amount of work if, sometimes. If the problem was every day, I mean, okay, but if it's every, every night, that's different. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was, um, yeah, inevitably there'd be Friday afternoon at 4.30 yeah. p.m. when I was getting ready to head out the door, my phone would ring or the pager that I had at the time would go off and I would see that it was someone, the operator in the manufacturing plant calling me and I went, oh no, I'm going to be here for another few hours. So, <laughs> yeah. Friday evening blues. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's always <laughs> kind of, you know, it always happens when, yeah, it's really bad timing. So there is actually one of the areas where then, you know, the design of experiments really comes in in these areas. And um, I, I don't understand a lot about design of experiments, but, but my kind of very, very uh, uneducated understanding is, is that it's 
when you have basically, for example, you want to find, you know, the best way to have some kind of product produced. And you have these, all these different variables like pressure and how many, you know, ingredients you have from all the different materials and temperature and, you know, all kind of different dimensions. Then, you know, finding the, this optimum in this big space, big multidimensional space is really, really difficult. And so I think design of experiments is about kind of getting, you know, to this optimum in, a, in, in the best way, in, in the most effective way. Yeah, it, it, there's a lot of aspects about experimental design that make it very useful as a tool in the manufacturing area. Yeah. The number one, I think, is we'd be efficiency. It's an efficient way to generate knowledge about a system. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, I think that's probably one of the skills that I have is being a systems thinker. I think about how things work and I think about the inputs and the outputs and the controls in the system. And what you really want to understand is how do the inputs and the controls of a system affect the output of a system? Mm-hmm. What would you, how would you differentiate input and controls? So uh, an input would be, Maybe the, say for a, a drug product that you're making, mm-hmm. one of the critical quality attributes of that drug product is the amount of impurities that are in that drug, right? Okay. Ideally, you don't want a, lo- a high level of impurities, say that might come from degradation of the drug substance or interaction between the drug yeah. substance and the excipients of the, of the drug product. Or, or, you know, there's different, different ways you can get impurities in a, in, a, in a drug product. And those impurities can come from different places. They can come from the input materials that you're using. Mm-hmm. You can actually be using a drug substance that has impurities in it. Here's a little secret, if you don't know this. Pretty much every drug substance has some impurities in it. It's just a fact of manufacturing. Now, what we do in, in, the de- in, in the development of drug substances is to show that the levels of impurities are at a level that are not harmful, mm-hmm. that are safe, that don't impact the safety of the, of the product, of the use of the product. But anyway, so you can get impurities that come from the input materials. You can also create impurities during the drug product manufacturing process. Mm-hmm. You could say you needed to use high temperature during a mixing step to get things to mix well, well, that temperature might lead to degradation of the drug substance or might cause a reaction between the drug substance and what's in the other parts of the drug, the, what we call the excipients of the drug. The, it could cause an interaction between the two and, call, and make an impurity. So, and that then impacts the output of the, of the drug substance process. You, you, typically, you have more impurities, but you also might have less of the active drug. So, it impacts both potentially both safety and efficacy. So, mm-hmm. so that's the thing you need to, to do is understand how do those inputs to the process and the things that you can control while you're making the drug um, impact the outputs of the prospect process. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And it's um, also thinking about systems. Yeah. So, so any kind of complex systems that, you know, has various way where you can alter things and various way where how we, things 
flow into it and get out of it. Um, when you want to understand these systems in a statistical way, yes, and design of experiments is, is the choice to go. Yeah, it's a very structured way to generate data so that you can answer a question with less ambiguity. Mm -hmm. uh, one a big problem that can happen when you do experimentation or generate data uh, on a system is that you can have confounding. And statisticians yeah. know about confounding, right? If, if I said, uh, I walk outside and I open my umbrella and it rains, say, well, maybe maybe it's I open my umbrella that it rains and I walk out the next day and I don't open my umbrella and it didn't rain. Maybe it's because I didn't open my umbrella. It didn't <laughs> rain. Right. But what we, so we're looking at one factor that I open my umbrella. Yes or no. But there are other factors out there that cause make decide whether it's going to rain or not. Yeah. yeah. And that's a, that's a silly example, but there are real examples where people do that. They, they vary something and they think that's the cause for the variation in the output of the process. But in reality, something else is changing at the same time. And yeah. that's what's causing the variation. The other thing they'll do is they'll vary two things at the same time in the same direction mm -hmm. while doing an experiment. They'll vary temperature and pressure, right? And they'll go high temperature, high pressure, low temperature, low pressure. And they see a change in the response between those two conditions. And they want to know, well, was it temperature that caused the change or was it pressure that caused the change? Was it both? Yeah. yeah. Is there an interaction between temperature and pressure? There's, and and to, so to do an efficient and effective experimental design, you design your study so that you can estimate the effects of those two factors independently of each other. Yeah. Yeah. And it gets even more complex if you have three, four, five. Right. Yeah, and we could probably do a whole session just on about experimental design if you if we wanted to and uh, it's hard to do with just words but the but the concepts are 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 not that complicated it's really about avoiding confounding and it's about being efficient in the number of experiments you need to do in order to estimate the effect of a factor on a system okay and then after all this work you had a had a little bit of a detour which is yeah, so, really interesting that that you wanted to sell something <laughs> that's right i moved into sales and marketing uh if you looked at my career path or you looked at my work history on linkedin or my resume you'd say wow it looks like sam has a hard time keeping a job because <laughs> i just move from place to place a lot um but no i um just circumstances led me to want to look to do something different. And I found a job working for SaaS. And I was introduced to one of their software products, SaaS, right, in graduate mm -hmm. school. I, I learned at the time when I was in graduate school, pretty much everyone learned SaaS. And uh, so I knew SaaS. But then um, I learned, got introduced to Jump, their software product that's a desktop graphical product. Um, while I was in the Air Force. And I continued to use it through my career. And when I got to Lilly, we used it extensively and I got to know it pretty well. So I thought I knew Jump pretty well. And, and so I, they hired me to work in a, on a sales team to go out and help sale, sell Jump software to new customers or to get existing customers to continue to use it or buy more of it, have more people use it. And uh, I learned a lot 
um, in that role. It was, I was in that role for, and at SAS for five years. And I learned a lot more about the software than I thought I knew. And, um, but I also learned a lot about sales and marketing and what it takes to be uh, influential and successful in that area. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting skill set to have. You know, at one point in my life, I was thinking like, well, sales is all about convincing someone to buy something that they don't need. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but in reality, it, if you're a good salesperson, then, you know, you see what the other person needs and uh, you help him to satisfy these needs. Yeah, yeah that's the best yeah. type of sales engagement is where you find someone that has a need, a problem to be solved, and you have a solution for them that helps them solve their problem. Um, I, and, and do it in a way that's effective, saves them money. You know, that, that's just a great feeling. I, I remember one example where I went into a company and they had, they had a problem. They had worked about 80 hours on solving. It was basically like a data mining, exploratory modeling project. And they gave me their data. And live while I was sitting there in the room with them, they had literally opened the file and started analyzing it. In about 10 minutes, I had the answer that they had, that they had gotten over about 80 hours. And it was the tool and also the ability to know how to use it that, that really made that easy. To get that found the answer and you know that was that was an easy sell that was an easy uh <laughs> i can imagine yeah they, they were ready to sign the contract after that it was it was good you know and it felt good it felt really good to be able to do that because i knew if they spent the time and invested the time in learning how to use the tool they would be more effective at what they were doing um in, mm. in their their business so yeah that's really good like a good you know it's a good uh, composition if you if you're a good salesperson but also you know the product very well so it's kind yeah. of a technical skill set of understanding what what it does and how it works and so to, to not only create a need and then you know send the, the contract but also present and, and do right and and yeah. you've talked a lot about communication on the podcast in yeah. the training program, the effective statistician training program, we talked about is that is one of the foundations of having influence and being a leader is being able to communicate. And I learned a lot about communication and communication isn't all just about saying everything, you know, it isn't about talking all the time. Sometimes it's about listening yeah. and not, not talking over the people that you're with. Uh, I remember a hard lesson I learned when I was in sales where the sales rep that I worked with, who was a wonderful guy, I just love him to death, but he had a slow way of talking. He just talked slow and it would really make me uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and of course I'm a fast talker. And also because I think I know everything and I'm, I'm smart. I think I know all the answers too. So, so I kind of barged over him and just started saying, well, here's what you need customers. You need ABCD. You do this, boom, boom, get the software. You'll be good. And the kind of the meeting was over and we left that meeting and I'd never seen him mad at me before, but he was mad at me. And he said, don't ever do that to me again. And, and he's, he basically said, you know, I have a, a, a way that I talk to people and it's sometimes it's on purpose. By talking slow, 
and leaving gaps in the conversation and letting other people talk, you find out things that you wouldn't find out otherwise. Hmm, just true. Like you might find yeah. out that, oh, in a sales opportunity, not only does this group need some help, um, maybe this other group that's down the hall, they could also use the software too. Right? Mm-hmm. In a, in a, as a statistician in a pro- that you're solving a problem with, you may just by just asking some simple questions like, you know, you think maybe anybody else is going through a problem like this too? And then not talking. People are going to start telling you all kinds of things you didn't learn before about, oh yeah, they have the same problem in this other group. It's, it's kind of siloed from us in the business, but I know I have a friend over there and yeah, I think they have the same problem. And maybe sometimes you can make those connections and get people working together to solve the problems together, or at least identify the common problems that they have. Yeah. I think having a gap in a, you know, when, when you talk just to give other people the chance to think, maybe to jump in, it's, it's really a good, good approach. It's kind of the, the way, part of the active listening exercise. Yeah. After you work with SaaS, you did return. Yeah. I went back to Lily. And they, they, they asked me to come back surprisingly and, um, or I applied for a job and they invited me to come back, I should say. And what I wanted to do was try my hand at this area of big data and the predictive analytics. When I worked at SAS, that's all we talked about, right? That was the buzzword, predictive analytics, big data, predictive analytics, predictive modeling. But I hadn't done a lot of that in my career and I wanted to see if I could do it. And so I got hired in, a, in the advanced analytics group at, at Lilly. And we actually were working on supporting the sales and marketing teams doing marketing modeling and sales effectiveness modeling. And you may not know this, but they collect a lot of data in pharmaceutical sales and in pharmaceutical marketing. They have to. Um, many countries require that they do a lot of reporting. So every time a a, a salesperson from a pharmaceutical company talks to a medical professional, a healthcare provider in the U.S., that gets recorded. Uh, and, and, and so you know the day they went to talk to somebody. And oftentimes they record things like, well, what did I talk to them about? Did I leave them a piece of marketing material? Did I leave them a, a sample of the drug that I would like them to sell? Uh, different things like that. So all that data was available and, you know, millions and millions of rows of data over a period of time could be generated from that. Same thing in marketing. Um, they send emails and communications out to um, doctors and, you know, they have ways when you, they know when you open an email or if you yeah. click on a link in an email, they, they track that. They would also track what doctors would come to seminars. They'd offer a, a, um, thought leader seminar, right? Or someone who's an expert in oncology, a particular type of oncology area. And they'd invite doctors to come to a dinner and listen to this person talk and they would record all those people. And so what they wanted to know is, well, which of these marketing methods and channels and sales methods and channels might be the most effective in uh, increasing or driving sales of the drug product. And that's an important thing for pharmaceutical companies. You know, because yeah. particularly while you're, your drug's on patent and you've got to grow the, the use of that drug as fast as you can. And you've got to sustain that over a period of time to get the benefit, the financial benefit out of it. So you have the money to pay back your shareholders and also invest in future drug products. So there's a, it's a pretty important thing for pharmaceutical companies to, to know that. Yeah. And so I did that. I did, I did these big data problems 
trying to model the effectiveness of different touch points. We call them touch points. So whether a sales rep talked to a healthcare provider or they got an email from the company and uh, I discovered I really hated that work. <laughs> you know, I, I, as, as part of this podcast and all the things, yeah, I also need to do a little bit in this, yeah, to, to see kind of, okay, should I do more LinkedIn posts or should I write more blog posts or, you know, should I record videos for LinkedIn or, you know, kind of webinars to run to track more listeners to, to the podcast, all these kind of different things. And looking there into the data, well, I do it probably not as sophisticated like, you know, a big company does it, but yeah, I can also see how many people open my email. Yeah. And, and right. uh, try well, to imagine, the, you know, the time you have to take just to get the data ready and make a simple graph of it and, and think about it and magnify that hundreds or thousands of times. Yeah. And what I found was those jobs tend to be a lot about data and not a lot about analysis. <laughs> the, uh, the analysis isn't that hard. And, the, and honestly, the software does the analysis for you. I mean, you yeah. It just, you just got to program and let it run. Sometimes it takes a long time and you've got to do some work to make it more efficient. And that was probably what I enjoyed the most is that some of the modeling I was able to work on doing distributed computing where you could break it up into small parts and have parts of it run on different machines yeah. and then collect it all together. I enjoyed that a lot, but, um, but just the data side of it. And I don't know, I don't think I really clicked with the pharma sales and marketing group either. That just, or it just wasn't a great fit for me. So Anyway, it's so a very, was... very different culture there compared to chemistry and manufacturing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how long did you, did you stay there then? That was about two years. And then I was very fortunate in that in the animal health division of Lilly, Alanco, they had an opening or an opportunity for someone to come work in, in development and in research and development to be a CMNC statistician. Now CMNC stands for chemistry manufacturing and controls. So it's basically being the statistician supporting all of the work that was going on for process development of new drug products, new drug substances, and all of the analytical methods that were used to test the quality of those, those materials. Right. So animal testing is something that I never touched, uh, you know, I never got contact in. So it's, um, so what, what was the difference then to, you know, so Elanco, which later got, was spun out into its own independent company. Um, but they make medicines for animals. So okay. they make tablets and injectables and uh, creams and oh, okay. cats and dogs and pigs and cows and sheep and, yeah, so it's it's not animal testing, kind of toxicity testing for no. then, so that it's later been used in humans. It's it's really kind of sometimes you you take these active ingredients that are used in humans and then you use it for something else in the animals. Yeah. Right. I mean, many listeners probably have taken their dog or cat to the veterinarian, and the veterinarian will prescribe a medicine for that animal, their pet, to treat a, treat a problem, whether it's a parasite or it's an infection or, or pain or something like that. And those have been developed by a pharmaceutical company to be used by patients, be sold through veterinarians or prescribed by veterinarians and used by patients. And it's very much like making medicine for humans. Um, actually, it's about almost the same. 
as making medicine for humans. With the exception is when you make medicine for humans, you only got one species you got to worry about. (laughs) And when you're a company that makes medicines for multiple species, um, that, that poses a challenge, right? Because you, I think you probably know this on working in the clinical area. You learn a lot about the biology of humans, right? And well, multiply that times six, right? Because you need to know about the biology of six different species. Um, and then, yeah, so there's, and then, and then there's a lot of different product forms that animals use that you would never use on a human. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can imagine. Uh, and, 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 you know, the, the variability within, let's say, dogs is, probably much bigger than the variability within human adults. Yeah. Right, so. <laughs> right. and, and while I didn't work in the efficacy or safety area while I was there, imagine the challenges you would have trying to develop a drug for pain for a dog. Hmm. Right. Cause the dog can't tell you that it's in yeah. pain. Yeah. yeah. You have to figure out how do you know that dog's in pain? And also for other things like a diary for a dog. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're not going to yeah. go put a scratch on yeah. the wall. Yeah, exactly. So it's happening. Actually, yeah. there's some interesting things that are probably now yeah. possible with with all the AI and video uh, recording mm-hmm. and and kind of uh, how you can then detect patterns and things like this. So yeah, whether the dog is running, you know, smoothly or whether he's not running smoothly, which kind of indicates pain. Things that is today much easier to measure probably than it used to be in the past. Yeah, probably guess. there's either the, the ability to use a device like a collar that has a motion sensor on it. Mm-hmm. You can just track the amount of motion and the volume of activity. You can also in controlled environments maybe you could use a video camera and, and video an animal and, you know, correlate the amount of activity or amount of motion or the types of things that an animal will do when they're in pain and when they're not. Yeah. 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 Yes. It's, it's a really, really interesting area. And of course you can do experiments that you probably wouldn't do with humans. <laughs> well, that's true. You know, it's um, the, the clinical trials run very fast with animals. Right. And, and that's what made it a real challenge in the area that I was working in. in. In human pharma, what takes the longest amount of time is to plan and execute and analyze the phase three clinical trial. Yeah. Right. And so that gives lots of time for other things to happen, like figuring out how you're going to actually make the final drug product and how you're going to test the quality. Well, in animal health, that's flipped around. The, the animal trials can go very fast. They can be done in six months and you know what you need to know about safety and efficacy. Um, and so that means you've got to compress that timeline on doing the chemi- the CMNC, chemistry manufacturing controls development work uh, to as short a timeline as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, so the, the kind of critical chain in the process looks yeah. very, very different. Always on the critical path, always on the critical mm. path in that area. So. So that was a great experience. I, I love that in, in many ways. Um, it was an international job and that I got to travel internationally. I spent a lot of time in Europe and in Switzerland in particular and uh, met a lot of great people and enjoyed the culture there quite a bit. And, um, and then I, um, and I learned a lot about drug product manufacturing that I hadn't learned before. Mm. Like I didn't know much about how a tablet is made. 
or how do you make a therapeutic protein or a monoclonal antibody? I didn't know much about that, but I learned it was, it was neat to learn that, that science. That's cool. But finally, you also left that job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, surprise. And I, surprise. <laughs> I did something different. Yeah. So back this last August, I decided to leave Alenco and start my own consulting business. I, I heard you once saying that actually the, the program from Gary and myself was kind of a little bit of a, of a trigger there as well, or as a, it enabled it a little bit to make it easier to take this risk. Yeah, it was very helpful for me because as part of that program, I did a lot of introspection, right? I, I thought about myself a lot in a, in a way like what, what's the best fit for me? What is the right type of work for me? What is the work that I'm best at and what could I be the most successful at? And so actually I had at the beginning of uh, last year, 2020, I sat down and uh, I wrote down sort of like a three to five year plan. What did I thought, think the next three to five years would look like? And I had on there maybe in three to five years leave and start my own consulting business because I thought I, I would be good at that and I think I would enjoy it. But then in the middle of this last year, an opportunity presented itself where I could start doing that right away. And so I jumped at it. I, I decided, let's go. And, and it's been great. I, I've really enjoyed it. I, I have a couple of really good, well, wonderful clients that I'm working for and interesting, interesting work and interesting, good people to work with. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. And uh, there aren't a lot of people like me doing this, this that, that focus and specialize in the manufacturing statistics, manufacturing R&D statistics, and, and more particularly the non-clinical statistics area. And um, I uh, am from, but for the people that I know that do that, a lot of them say they've, they've always had work to do because there's always a need in these areas for people to come in and, and help. So I'm, I'm hopeful this will be a good, uh, maybe a final career path for me. I don't know. Uh, we'll see. I've, I've, I've got uh, probably another decade uh, or two of, of work in me. Uh, and, um, and hopefully this will be a, a good path for me to be on for a while. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, to be honest, I think there's something that's coming up for you <laughs> at some point, <laughs> given the history, <laughs> you know, being a statistician, given the history. Um, no, but it's just, um, it's amazing. And, and I believe what you just said is about the unique way, um, you know, you've been talking through your, basically your career and this is, it must be unique. So there can't be anyone is, uh, you know, with the same the same kind of variety and type of from military over animal testing and you know, this, the product line chemistry and back. So it's, I believe you're absolutely right that this is quite of a unique uh, position that you are in. So good. And so, and what, what actually are you, are you then doing at the moment? So what, what is the, you know, what is the type of work that you're, you're spending your time with? Well, I'm, I'm helping these, the clients I have on solving problems that they have within uh, research and development and manufacturing. So an example would be you're developing a new process to make a drug product. And one of the things you have to do when you submit your uh, application to get that product approved, whether it's in the U.S. or in the Europe or other, other areas, it's part of the, the common technical document in the CTD. There's a whole section on CMNC, chemical manufacturing controls. 
And so there's lots of information that has to be generated. For instance, when I run this process, what are the critical quality attributes that define the quality of this product that are related to the actual safety and efficacy of the product, right? So it might be the potency of the drug, how much of the active content is actually in the drug product. Cause you want to have an accurate dose, right? Mm. Cause you, you determine the dose in research to say, this is the dose that's effective. So I need to deliver that dose. Um, so you need to have a, a process that makes material that's on average, it's on target, right? It's always making things that are on average that dose. And in addition, not too much variation around that target dose. Yeah. Um, and so what are the conditions in the manufacturing process that would allow you to do that? Um, other things would be, what are, the what are the parameters? Remember I talked about the system and you have the inputs and the controls and the outputs. Mm -hmm. So what are the constraints I need to put around the inputs and the controls? Which of those are really critical to quality? Call those critical quality parameters or crit sorry, critical process parameters, I should say or critical, critical material attributes. What are those things that I need to control and either have a specification on? So if I'm taking an excipient, what are the specifications that I need to have on that excipient for the drug product? So the, that drug product will be good quality. Or if temperature really impacts the amount of impurities that get formed during the manufacturing process, what's the range of temperatures that I need to operate within and stay within to, to get, be guaranteed that uh, that material is going to have good quality. And so there's a lot of experimentation that goes into that, both uh, you know, using experimental design. And then there's also just a lot of exploratory data analysis. So you have a lot of data laying around that people have generated and you've got to put it together and try to build a picture of what the, what those relationships are and what the variability is. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So that would be an, a, that would be an example of the type of problem you work on solving. Um, it doesn't sound very complicated, and mathematically, it's not. Lots of times, the most complicated thing I do is make a graph. <laughs> right? Actually, that is something that we will dive deeper in the next episode, where oh, we will speak much more about non-clinical pharmaceutical statistics. So great to have you uh, on the call. And great to have you on the podcast. I no need to say, yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a different ending for me. Usually I say kind of great to have you and goodbye to, to the interview guests. But today it will be different. It will That's be right. see you again. See you again <laughs> soon. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. It's, it's great to yeah, very, very tell welcome. a little bit about myself. And, and I'm looking forward to this uh, ongoing work together. <laughs> This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain who helps with the show in the background. And especially, thank you for listening. If you want to learn more about the Effective Statistician, then head over to our homepage, theeffectivestatistician.com. Find the show notes and learn more to boost your career as a statistician in the health sector. Reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.